Well, hello, friends. Thank you all so much for coming back for a second week, even despite all of the problems that we had with the video and stuff last week. Hopefully, we've got it figured out this time uh, and we'll be able to play it. So um, thanks again for coming back. Looking forward to diving into the text today. I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm, I feel like I talk really loud, but, but I'll talk even louder. <laughs> so uh, all right, well, we'll go ahead and dive in um, into this video that's kind of an overview of the book of Job. And then um, if you have any questions or if something comes up, follow that away because we'll chat about that uh, after the video is over. Book of Job. It's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. It's set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite, and the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job, and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realm. And God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. The prologue is setting up the real questions this book is trying to get at questions about God's justice, and whether God operates the universe according to the strict principle of justice. And the response to those questions comes as you read through to the end of the book, not at the beginning. The ultimate reason for Job's suffering is simply never revealed. So the prologue concludes with a suffering and bewildered Job, who's rebuked by his wife, and he's approached by three friends who are going to try and provide wisdom and counsel. Their names are Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They're all non-Israelites like Job. And they represent the best of ancient Near Eastern thinking about God and suffering and human condition. And this moves us into the main part of the book. First, Job speaks. And this is how the section of the book works. First, Job is going to speak, and then they'll follow a response from a friend. Then Job will respond to that friend. Then another friend will respond to Job's response, and so on, back and forth, for three cycles. And this whole debate is focused on three questions. Is God truly just in character? And does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? And if so, then how is Job's suffering to be explained? As we're going to see, Job and the friends, they're working from a huge assumption about what God's justice ought to look like in the world. Namely, that 
every single thing that happens in the universe should operate according to the strict principle of justice. So if you're a wise, good person and you honor God, good things will happen to you. God will reward you. But if you're evil and stupid and do sinful things, bad things will happen to you. God will punish you. Now Job's constant argument throughout his speeches is this. First of all, that he's innocent. And so the implication of that is that his suffering is not a divine punishment. Now we know from the prologue, both of these things are true. Remember, God himself said, Job is righteous and blameless. And so Job concludes his argument by accusing God. God either doesn't run the world according to justice, or even worse, God himself is simply unjust. The friends, on the other hand, they beg to differ. Their argument is that God is just. The implication being that God always runs the world according to justice in this way. And so they conclude by accusing not God, but Job. Job must have done something really, really bad for God to punish him like this. They even start making up possible sins that Job must have committed. Job protests to all of this. In fact, he gets so fed up with the friends that he eventually just gives up on them. He takes up his case directly with God. Now, something to be aware of is that Job, he's on an emotional roller coaster in these poems. He used to think that God is just, but now he can't reconcile that with his suffering. And so in some outbursts, Job will accuse God of being a bully. Once he even declares that God has orchestrated all the injustice in the world. But the moment he utters that thought, he's terrified of it because he wants to hope and believe that God is truly just. Job is all over the place in this section. And so he makes one last statement of his innocence and then he demands that God show up personally to explain himself. Now it's at this point that a surprise friend shows up, Elihu the Buzite. Now, he's not an Israelite, but he does have a Hebrew name. And Elihu, he has the same assumption as Job and the friends. He argues that God is just, and that that implies that God always operates the universe according to justice. But then Elihu draws a more sophisticated conclusion about why good people suffer. It may not be punishment for sin in the past. God might inflict suffering as a warning to help people avoid sin in the future. Or God might use pain and suffering to build character or to teach people valuable lessons. Elihu doesn't claim to know why Job is suffering, but one thing he is certain of, Job is wrong to accuse God of being unjust. Job doesn't even respond to Elihu and the dialogues come to a close. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and the mystery remains. And then, all of a sudden, God shows up in a whirlwind and he responds to Job personally. He first responds to Job's accusation that he's unjust and incompetent at running the universe. So God takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe, and he starts asking him all these questions about the order and origins of the cosmos. Was Job ever around when God architected the earth or organized the constellations? Has Job ever commanded the sunrise or controlled the weather? God has his eyes on all of these cosmic details that Job has never even conceived of. Then God starts going into detail, describing the grazing habits of mountain goats and how deer give birth, or the feeding patterns of lions and wild donkeys. What's the point of all this? Remember the assumption of Job and his friends about what it looks like for God to run the world according to justice. Underneath that assumption is a deeper one, that Job and his friends have a wide enough perspective on life to make such a claim about how God ought to run the world. And God's response with this virtual tour, it deconstructs all of these assumptions. It first of all shows that the universe is a vast, complex place, and that God has his eyes on all of it, every detail. 
Job, on the other hand, has only the small horizon of his life experience to draw from. His view of the world is very limited. And so what looks like divine injustice, from Job's point of view, needs to be seen in an infinitely larger context. Job is simply not in a position to make such a huge accusation about God. After the virtual tour, God asks Job if he would like to micromanage the world for a day, according to the strict principle of justice that Job and his friends assume, punishing every evil deed of every person at every moment with precise retribution. The fact is that carrying out justice in a world like ours is extremely complex. It's never black and white, like Job and the friends seem to think. Which leads to God's last point. He starts describing these two fantastic creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan, which some people think are poetic depictions of a hippo and a crocodile. But more likely, they refer to well-known creatures from ancient Near Eastern mythology that are used elsewhere in the Bible as symbols of the disorder and danger that exist in God's good world. These creatures, they're not evil. God's actually quite proud of them, but they're not safe either. The point is that God's world is amazing and very good, but it's not perfect or always safe. God's world has order and beauty, but it's also wild and sometimes dangerous, just like these two fantastic creatures. And so we come back to the big question of Job's suffering. Why is there suffering in God's world? Whether it's from earthquakes or wild animals or from other humans, God doesn't explain why. What he says is that we live in an extremely complex, amazing world that at this stage, at least, is not designed to prevent suffering. And that's God's response. Job challenged God's justice. God responds that Job doesn't have sufficient knowledge about our universe to make such a claim. Job demanded a full explanation from God. And what God asked Job for is trust in his wisdom and character. And so, Job responds with humility and repentance. He apologizes for accusing God, and he acknowledges that he's overstepped his bounds. Then all of a sudden, the book concludes with a short epilogue. First, God says that the friends were wrong, that their ideas about God's justice were just too simple, not true to the complexity of the world or God's wisdom. And then God says that Job has spoken rightly about him. Now, this is surprising, because it can't apply to everything Job said. I mean, we know Job drew hasty and wrong conclusions, but God still approves of Job's wrestling. How Job came honestly before God with all of his emotion and pain and simply wanted to talk to God himself. And God says, that's the right way to process through all of this, through the struggle of prayer. The book concludes with Job having his health, his family, his wealth, all restored. Not as a reward for good behavior, but simply as a generous gift from God. And that's the end of the book. So the book of Job, it doesn't unlock the puzzle of why bad things happen to good people. Rather, it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try and figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God, like the friends, or, like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. And so the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God, and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he's doing. And that's what the book of Job is all about. All right. What do you guys think? <laughs> Did y'all find that helpful? Yeah. Found that very helpful.
to the text of Job today. So we're going to read the first two chapters and talk a little bit about uh, what sort of um, book this is. Um, and so if you'll remember from the video, we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, the author is anonymous, and there is no indication what time frame that this was set in. Uh, and that is all intentional, uh, because this is wisdom literature. It is not a story about an actual person. Um, it is not um, the life of Job that somebody is documenting. This is um, a book about um, who God is, and they're using um, poetry. So the book of Job, with the exception of the first two chapters and the last chapter, um, which are prose, everything else in the middle. So. Um, nearly 40 chapters is poetry, um, and so it is, it is designed to, um, like poetry does, to help us uh, ask good questions of ourselves and to wrestle with things in ways that uh, prose sometimes is not able to do for us. Um, what else would you ask about? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not like that covered, covered as well. God about something. So um, 
again, I'm not, I'm not sure, there's no way to know for sure, but uh, it's not a compelling enough argument to me to say that, um, that the first two chapters came along later to fix some of the problems in Job. So. Well, yeah, one other thought on, uh, on one other additional proper name, <laughs> proper name uh, in the first couple of chapters. You may have noticed the video didn't mention Satan, it mentioned a Satan. That's because that's the actual Hebrew word, Satan. So tra our translators always have to make a decision, right? Do we translate it into something in English, or do we take this as a proper name that we should just transliterate into what we would call Satan? Yeah, so it, it's a question. Uh, the, the, the video editors cho chose to go with the Satan, which simply means the accuser, or the opponent, the adversary. So, and, and this Hebrew word is only used a couple of other times outside of Job in all of the Old Testament. So whether we should say that is Satan, that we think of or not, is, it's a valid question. All right, so if you'll turn in your Bibles, uh, we're just going to read through Job chapter 1 and 2. We won't read every bit of Job uh, over the course of the summer, but as this is a textual class, we do really want to dive into it and, and explore um, the actual words. So uh, let's hear the words of the Lord from the book of Job. In the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and, he would invite, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he, has in his, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
while they were still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, with roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hand, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin when he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nahamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. All right. Well, what questions or comments do you have from those first two chapters? What stood out to you? Uh, I'm always struck with how contemporary that feels. And I read a book by a guy named Tom Cahill called Sailing on a Wind Dark Sea. And it, it basically tells the story of early Greek literature in the 7th century B.C. and on. And as I read that book, I teared up several times because the conversations between husbands and wives or between friends sounded like today. And so I, you, you just realize that Human beings, as you go back in that period of time, if we met them now, I think we would get them. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody else? Yeah, I think 
I think the question is asked, or the main question is asked by God to begin with. How do you consider my servant? I mean, and it's very humbling. Yeah. If I put my name in there, can I put my name in there? Mm -hmm. Should I be living my life in such a way that I certainly don't want, as David said, we don't want that kind of pest. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be so good that we're right. a target, but really it's very humbling. Have you considered it? God looking at me and saying, have you considered my servant and looking at my life? Yeah. All very good comments. Love those. Any other thoughts? It made me think, made us think, how, how deep is our faith? How deep is my faith? Uh, is my faith very shallow mm -hmm. so that when things are going well, I can say, I have lots of faith in God. But when 
bad comes to me and my family and my loved ones and my church, how deep does my faith really go? Yeah. 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 One of the things in first service that God talks about is living in the tension of the reality of, that we see and what God has promised mm-hmm. and living in that in-between letter, you know, like the Saturday of Easter weekend or whatever. And off, we're so often called to live in that tension. So mm-hmm. when you strip everything down, like, is God worthy of the glory? Absolutely. But are we going to translate that in our devotion and our unwavering faith despite what culture is saying and all of those things is he is keeping me so fast in our hearts yeah. what he said. So. Yeah, those are all some really great answers. Yes, yes. I feel like in the New Testament we read a lot about us needing to increase our faith, but as we've been looking at Job, I think it's more about God's faith that he has in us. Mm-hmm. And so like his question of, well, have you considered Job? Yeah, I think if I could summarize um, sort of what everybody said, it would be that the big question that the heavenly realm is asking is, why are the righteous pious? Why do the righteous praise God? Is it because of the things that they get? Is Or is it because God is worthy of praise? Is it because of relationship with God? Or is it because of this giant cosmic vending machine that gives us good things and then we in turn bless God? And so um, to answer your question a little bit, I, I think that this book is helping humans wrestle with a question that humans have always wrestled with, which is um, where is God in suffering and why, you know, if I am suffering, what is the point of praising God? Uh, who is God in suffering? What is this? Um, what is the point of this? And so I think the story is constructed um, to create a scenario where, um, you know, for I don't think this happens, right, that one person in one day has every one of his children, every one of his cattle, every one of his, um, of his um, servants, everything in his household taken away from him, one after the other after the other. Uh, and it's both um, man-made destruction, so you've got these, uh, warring groups coming in, but you also have natural destruction, like a great wind, uh, and then the sickness that Job, um, that Job gets. And so this is a um, some hyperbole, hyperbole and some irony mixed in with this prose and poetry in order to help us interrogate ourselves uh, as we um, consider who God is and who we are in response to God. Uh, I don't know if that helps, but that's, that's kind yeah, of what no, I that's, right that, I'm just, some element of um, humanity balks at yes. the idea of this conversation happening. Absolutely. But true or not, back to the whole question of the other one, even if that were the case, are you still going to serve me? Yeah. It's still a, a So this may be presenting some yeah. thought of that. Right. The, the furthest you can go with it, right? If yeah. God is like this, is God still worthy? One thing we do know that Job is not privy to understanding that any of that might or may not have been happening. Still, he has to decide, are you going to serve? That may be the question you were saying. I think it's asking, what is the basis of faith? I mean, is it faith that when we get what we want? Or, like like it's been said, do we not get what we want sometimes? And then that's a lack of faith. But does our faith stay with us even when everything that we thought we're asking for gone? Yeah. 
it's interesting when he's not doing it. He's not when I ask him. So I do want to touch on the wife a little bit because I think she gets a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, was, anybody, was, was anybody reading along in their um, on their phone and um, notice in verse nine? Uh, then the wife said to him, "Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die." Does anybody have a notation next to the word curse in their in their phone app? Bless. Yes, it literally says, bless God, and die. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's a little bit confusing. So there's, there's pretty compelling arguments that uh, she did actually mean, curse God and die, uh, because when, when you're talking about cursing, there, there, there is another word for curse, but when you're talking about cursing God, that's, such a, that's so blasphemous that you couldn't even write it down, and so you would use a euphemism, which is bless God, but you all knew you were saying curse God. Uh, and, and this, um, some of the evidence for that is earlier in the book when Job says, uh, or when they're looking at Job's life and saying uh, Job would offer sacrifices for his sons and daughters after these feasts just in case they had cursed God in their hearts. That also says if he had, unless they had blessed God in their hearts. And so it's, it's hard to imagine Job uh, sacrificing something for a blessing that they were giving. Um, but you have to remember, she has suffered as well. So uh, she has lost all of her children. She has lost all of um, her possessions. If you have been close to somebody who has a sickness, um, you know that that impacts you too. That other person um, is certainly more visible. Um, but when you love somebody that's hurting, um, it, it changes things for you too. It changes the relationship. Um, and the, the word that, that, that God and the accuser, uh, the words that they're using when they're talking about this, uh, he says, okay, you can inflict his flesh and his bone. Uh, and that's, that directs us back to Genesis, where uh, it says that Eve is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So this thing that is happening to Job is also happening to Job's wife. And, uh, and so I imagine her, um, in her own pain and suffering, talking to Job and uh, really giving voice to something that he's not ready to voice quite yet. So... At the end of um, at the end of chapter one, um, there's there's a couple of verses. Uh, sorry, let me get back to it. Um, where Job says, uh, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." So this would have been a very common thing that people said. This would have been a prayer that was on people's lips a lot. And so uh, it's possible that just like when bad things happen to us, uh, we're, we're you know, in the closet with a tornado siren going off uh, and we start reciting the Lord's Prayer or something like that. This is, this is our default of, I'm trying to make sense of this. These are the, the words. This is the liturgy that I have that's in me that's helping to make sense of this. And then uh, if you'll notice later on in chapter 2, um, in verse, uh, verse 10, speaking of, of the wife, uh, he says, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall he receive the good at the hand of God and not the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So that, I think, is implying that he was beginning to question in his heart. So he had all the right words to say, but he was beginning to question in his heart. Uh, and I think that the evidence for that is, again, when he's talking about his children, he says, he's saying, uh, in case they're cursing God with their heart. So, so Job is, is well aware that you can say all the right things and be inwardly um, not in and so I think sometimes when we're in suffering, 
um, it can be such an inward focused kind of thing, right? It can it can it can be something that um, uh, makes our world so small, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. That's the nature of pain. Um, when you're physically hurting, that's all you can think about. Um, when you are heartbroken, that is all you can think about. Um, and I think that what Job's wife is doing and what his three friends do is give him a way to process this, to say out loud what is going on in him internally so that he's able to verbalize and respond to those kinds of things. Um, and I think she gets a bad rap, maybe a little bit unnecessarily. Uh, at the end, the three friends are required to, um, to sacrifice and repent um, for what they have said about God that's wrong, and the wife is not required to, and she is blessed with Job as well. And so I... Um, you know, I sympathize with her because I think that a lot of us would be in the same position of seeing somebody we, we love hurting and wanting to help them through that the best way we know how, but maybe not necessarily having the right words. So, oh, what do you guys think about all of that? I think the only thing that I like out of these two chapters of the Bible is the very, very last verse of the second chapter, which is when the friends come in and, and just sit. They don't try to say anything just to make Joe feel better. They don't, you know, offer suggestions like the wife does. They just sit still, and, and they, they're with him and his suffering. Um, it's probably the only thing they do right, um, but I know that I can learn a lot from that because I do want to be like the wife. I want to offer something, even if it's the wrong words. I want to fix, um, and there's suffering that we can't fix. Words aren't going to address, and the best thing that we can do is is be with someone in their suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they and I, they identify deeply with Job. Um, when you, the sufferer is the one that puts on sackcloth and ashes and tears their clothes. And in this scenario, when they saw him and saw how much they were suffering, that caused them to suffer too. And so they they deeply identified with Job and were hurting because of his pain. Um, so that's a, that's a great point. Yes? Uh, something I appreciate in those is every time uh, that God offers Satan up, he always says um, he gets the power of Satan. He does not himself inflict any of the pain <laughs> or any of the suffering. And I love that. Yeah, and I feel like God is that type of God. That he's not directly sending suffering.
we know less than 1% of what we need to know to explain the nature of the universe and all that's going on, uh, we're, we're ignorant as stick. So we struggle to try to understand it, but it's kind of funny that we do because we got no chance. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe why the question's unanswered. Yeah. It's just a proof to us that it's, it may not be answerable yeah. in our finite minds. One of the uh, papers, there's a crossword puzzle clue this past week. When we got it, it was really interesting. The crossword puzzle clue was qualifying rounds. And the answer was trial. Oh. It's like, oh, did you think it was a qualified review? Yeah. Next level or make you know, scores. Oh. And the answer was trial. So I thought that was. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's great. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's going to get worse from here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, next week is when Joe starts talking and his friends start replying. So uh, we'll have some good uh, bad theology to dig into. Uh, I did like what, how the video characterized all of these middle chapters. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's right. So uh, I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thanks for joining us today. Um, thanks for being willing to wrestle with some of these questions, uh, even knowing that encouraging to do it in community because uh, I think we all have these questions and the only way we can wrestle with them is together. So thanks for being here, friends.